Welcome to Lifelines and the second part of our program on Joseph Ellis's biography of George Washington. This is John Augustine. After the Revolutionary War ended, there were widespread rumors that Washington would have himself crowned as the King of America, following the precedent of such revolutionaries as Cromwell and Napoleon. Washington had made it clear he had no intention of establishing a monarchy and planned to return to private life. The English king, George III, our adversary in the late war, declared that if Washington did walk away from power, he would thus show himself the greatest man in the world. But that's exactly what he did, returning to his farm and family at Mount Vernon as a private citizen. But not for long. The American states were free, but not united, not nearly a nation. When the necessity of unification became obvious, Washington was approached to chair a constitutional convention to define a United States. But he was reluctant. He was on record as separated from public life and was glad to be out of it. And he was feeling his age. Years of war had aged him. Though he was only in his 50s, his family history persuaded him he might not have many years left. Later, on the eve of his inauguration, he told a friend he felt like a culprit on his way to the place of execution. He would go on to consent to one re-election, but he absolutely refused to run for a third term, though he would inevitably have been re-elected, despite his age and ill health. Washington knew he was a soldier and a farmer, not a political theorist. So just as he had consulted his staff officers during the war, he now turned to talented advisors to help him guide the Constitutional Convention, including John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. It was Jay, for example, who proposed a three-part federal government, executive, legislative, and judicial, the framework that defines the American system. Later, as president, Washington would initiate the tradition of the presidential cabinet, which had not been established in the Constitution, and employed many of his trusted advisors. He did not speak often at the convention, but presided with a paternal dignity at what Ellis calls the most consequential political debate in American history. There were two important issues the debaters deliberately ignored. One was slavery. Such a contentious issue, it threatened to bust up the convention and split the fragile alliance of our infant country. Eighty years later, it did. Washington, himself a plantation slave owner, had written that it was among his first wishes that a legislature would propose a plan to abolish slavery by slow and sure degrees. He was also the only prominent founding father to include in his will that his slaves should be freed, not sold. The other unresolved question was the relationship between the new nation and the Native Americans. Washington was unusually enlightened on this concern, advocating that the tribal homelands should be self-governing, apart from the states. Ellis says the president spent more time and energy on this issue during his first term than any other, but he could not implement it. At least he was committed to permitting the tribes to continue living on their native grounds, a promise broken by Andrew Jackson 40 years later. The Constitution established the office of the president, but was vague on how it would work. At the end of the convention, Washington knew three things. He would be chosen as the first president, like it or not, and he would have to invent the office, set the precedent for those who would follow. Finally, he would have to shape a nation out of 13 squabbling states. Again, he listened. 
When Madison presented the Bill of Rights he had composed as amendments to the Constitution, Washington accepted them without changing a word and trusted Madison to see them through the Congress. But the President could also take his own stand. He strongly advocated a national military academy to train professional officers who had been tragically lacking in the war. The result was West Point. But when war broke out between France and Britain, he was determined to remain neutral and keep the United States out of it, avoiding foreign entanglements. He also took an active hand in planning the capital city. As president, he selected the site on his beloved Potomac River and then decided on the location for the Congress building and the presidential mansion and chose the architects that built them. Other people decided to name the city Washington, D.C. At the end of his second term, he retired from public service again for the last time. He returned to Mount Vernon for the time that was left to him and died just two weeks before the turn of the century. In a famous eulogy, he was honored as first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. As Ellis puts it, there had been two distinct moments in the founding of America, the winning of independence and the making of a nation, and Washington had been the central figure in both. This program has been Lifelines. I'm John Augustine.